And welcome back or welcome to On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the Deputy Director of High Performance West, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus, the Director of High Performance West. This is the On Coaching podcast where we take you through, obviously, coaching, performance, running, and our favorite intellectual tangents. John, we're oh, back. I love intellectual tangents. That's what the people want. Lots of tangents. <laughs> that, yes. is, that is what we're known for. So if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back, my friends, but expect some tangents. So before we get to our tangents, let's set our constraint for this episode. And what we're going to talk about is the difference between average Good and great. Which is a huge chasm. But before we got into that, get into that, we got to pay bills. And we're paying bills because we have great sponsors. Not average or good, but a great sponsor. Steve, who's our current sponsor? Our current sponsor is Final Surge. What is Final Surge? And they're great. They and are great. They're great. How they're do we great. know they're great? I use them. My college, all my college training for the summer on Final Surge. Before this, I was having to text a billion people i mean there's 30 plus college kids trying to keep track of it trying to keep track of injuries and who's beat up and all that sending out word documents as schedules and now i just go on final surge upload my training easy to move things around see things visually as a coach um great for planning but uh Probably the greatest thing is now that kids just put in their workouts, put in their feedback, how they rate how they feel. They have a great pain management um, app on there that tells me if anything pops up and alerts me. So it allows me to do my coaching more efficiently. So yeah, step your game up. Get off email. Get off the Excel files. Like yes. step your game up. This will make your life a thousand times easier as longtime coaches who coach people in person or online final surge is a gift so by all means hop on you know visit final surge and get after it and the best thing is well a great thing for you listeners is they're going to give you 10 percent off uh which makes it an even better deal so you can check out the link um on either highperformancewest.com in the show notes or scienceofrunning.com in the show notes or you can head on over to finalsurge.com slash oncoaching and the coupon code, all caps, oncoaching. Got it. Put Boom. it in. Bill's paid. That's awesome. Now let's dive in and get to the nitty gritty. All right. Average, good, and great. So, you know, let, let me start by saying where this idea came from. It actually was a tweet which um, came from me watching kids run. Okay. So I was over at St. Mary's University where... I uh, teach for their master's program in the UK, and I was watching all these grade school kids go out to the track, and they were about to do uh, essentially a 100-meter stride, right? And there's probably 30 of them, and all shapes, sizes, fitnesses, boys, girls, everything, right? And the coach just lines them all up, all like 30 kids, and says, go, right? And you can tell that like some of them have talent and some don't, right? But... That didn't differentiate these kids, right? A couple, a handful, five or six just took off. And they were running as hard as they could to get to the finish line. And, you mm. know, one or two looked like a natural runner. But, you know, three or four, yes, not natural runners at all. Um, they were just trying, right? And then you go to the blob in the middle, right? And that's where most of them are kind of jogging, kind of... 
you know, kind of going through the motions, but they're running. Um, and that's where the majority of people are. And there were some really good natural looking runners. There were some people who, you know, maybe didn't have the most talent, but they were just kind of, you know, not trying that hard. And that was the middle. And then at the end, you had, again, five or six people who were walking. And obviously, they could give more effort than that. But they chose to walk the whole thing. And to me, that was like a wonderful analogy or a wonderful like display of you know, the differences in efforts and the differences in groups that, that become. And what that got me to is this point is that, you know, there's to get to greatness requires a combination of work ethic, talent, and all those things. Um, but to get to good generally just requires effort, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's, and, and to be average, you know, is doesn't take much right it takes kind of going through the motions but what's we're going to talk about today is those different gaps and what it takes to get jump across those chasms yeah crossing the chasm is huge right and that's i think where we all struggle with as coaches trying to encourage athletes to make that leap or even athletes who are really ambitious and motivated who want to make that leap and in this day and age, more than ever, I think we have to remember that making those leaps across those chasms is, is actually, it's not a jump, right? It's building a bridge. And it's a big, big, long bridge, which takes a long time to create. And having that creation horizon clearly defined and articulated, and also, too, being a little bit more fluid and being patient is not the highest um priority for this day and age and what i mean by that is we live in an instant gratification era someone asked me the other day you know um you know do you think millennials are entitled and i don't i don't think at all they're i think they're impatient and it's not their fault because my generation and steve's generation we were impatient compared to our parents and our parents were impatient compared to their parents why because connectedness and technology is so accelerated that you can have an instant return on a tweet, on a post, on something you put out in the world versus having this delayed um, feedback on whatever you do, right? So, and that's just going to probably perpetuate and continue. So, I think it's very clear as coaches, we can't get, a, you know, in our old old crotchety, you know, um, lawn chair and say, oh, these kids, they're just so entitled. They don't know how to work hard. No, 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 no. They're not. They are just used to instant. And so, what we have to do is we have to tell a story and we have to capture hearts and minds to get athletes and young people today to want to invest in the long haul, right? And so how you do that and how you set that up is to me almost as important in, you know, in your culture of the coaching crucible that you operate in as is the X's and O's in structure of the physiological elements of training. And that is – Go ahead, Steve. No, I was just going to say, so I, I think I think it was Jay Johnson who tweeted out something about who is a, you know, a, a very good coach who works, helps out a lot of high school coaches, right? Runs some camps mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And he tweeted out, the number of emails and questions I get on nuance of training, right, is enormous compared to the number of emails I get on how do I create a culture to get... 30, 40, 50, 60 kids out on the team and hooked up in love running. And, yes. And, yes. And 
like when we're looking at this average to good to great, I think that fits great. It fits perfectly into what most of us should be concerned of, which is how do we get from average to good, right? Mm-hmm. Be- because when we're dealing with most athletes, right, is or most programs, whether it's high school or college, if we can get too good, then we're going to get ninety percent of the way, right? And we're going to set the program up so that if someone or something has the chance to make that next jump to the chasm, then we can get there. But a lot of times what happens is we get caught up in the nuance of the details that we might need to worry about when we're, let's say, uh, perfecting someone's training. And we've just skipped over the first chasm, which is to get hey, let's get everyone on the bus. Let's get everyone hooked up. Let's get everyone fired up and ready to go um, to get us the majority of the way. Right. It's, you know, it's sexy to want to gravitate towards having the right coaching theory. Oh, I have the right coaching theory. I have the right workout structure and programming because that's what sells, right? Is this illusion that, hey, you know, you buy this or you this coach knows how to train like this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that I'm going to instantly be good. And all I have to do is show up and do the work. But that is the caveat. All the person has to do is show up and do the work. That's the hardest part because the work is very boring. The work is tedious. It's the same thing over and over and over again, not for a a season, not for a year, but year in and year out if you're going to make that leap. And that's a big reason why, in my opinion, people don't make the jumps from the average category to good and the good to great because it takes a lot of it takes a lot of focus and the attrition rates get higher and higher and higher because the feedback and the um, you know return on investment, so to speak, isn't as direct as you move up that ladder. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have a younger athlete and they can PR every single race every in, throughout a season. And that's addicting. That's awesome. I'm getting better. I'm seeing improvement. Who doesn't love to see the bank account, you know, the money in the bank account go up? That's awesome. And then they reach the plateau the next season or the or two seasons down the road. And now they have to have a gut check. I'm, I'm running harder than I ever have run before. You know, I'm training better than I have ever trained before. I'm training more than I've ever trained before. Why am I not seeing performance that's the best I've ever seen? And I like to remind people, that's not just you who struggles with that. Bob Kennedy struggled with that when he set the American record way back when in the 90s, right? There's a great quote. I, it was a blog post uh, many, many um, weeks ago on the highperformancewest.com um, blog that I, I do. And it's, you know, Bob expressed just that. I don't get why my performance is not uh, honoring or not at the level of my preparation. I'm doing the most best, fastest work. I feel great. This is incredible. And yet I can't, you know, hit a PR. He wasn't even worried about breaking the American record. He was just worrying about hitting. This is Bob freaking Kennedy, right? (laughs) So, you know, I remind people it's not just you and it's not just the athletes you're working with, but we have to now shape the culture and we have to shape expectations about what the maturation horizon is for the work. And then also, too, that's just not one plus one equals two, right? If you just run five miles and then you do, you know, 10 times a quarter at your mile race pace, it doesn't mean, you know, you do that on Wednesday, on Saturday, you're going to PR, right? We have what we call like, there's the body has delayed 
responses to this type of work. And sometimes the delayed response is not three days, but three weeks. Yeah, no, that's a, a, a brilliant point there, especially with Bob Kennedy. Is sometimes I think we have to take take and put things in perspective, right? And as an athlete, what happens is we lose that, and as a coach, we lose that perspective because we don't know what it takes to get to that level, right? We don't know mm-hmm. that they are dealing with a lot of times the same issues, the same problems, the same, you know, breakdowns in understanding and communication or whatever it is or same doubts um that we often are so i i think to maybe give some structure to this let's let's start off with what does it or let's kind of dive into what does it take to get from average to get i'd be curious well, I think, to, yeah go ahead Josh. so for me from a training perspective right i think you need to classify the different training effects and so there, we know there's three different training effects that if you do a certain type of work you know start there at the physical side and then you know we'll talk about the physical side and then we'll talk about the psychological side or the mental side so first we have the immediate training effect right and that's where everyone centrates and focuses on i ran this 400 meters at you know 800 meter pace oh my gosh hands on the knees this that was really hard coach wants me to do a 300 at the same pace 200 100 etc right we invest so much in this era in the immediate effects that we lose sight of the other more two and more important training effects. So the second one is the residuals, right? The residual training effect is essentially the um, effect that that previous repetition or previous set of repetitions is going to have on the next set, right? And so if you're doing, let's say, four sets of four times 400 at your – 3000 meter race pace on the track and you're breaking them up into sets like that you have to understand that fourth set that might be at let's just pick a random number 72 seconds per lap is not going to feel the same as the first or second set because of the residual training effect so a little less immediate but still in the context of an actual session and where coaches where i operate and live a lot is the third which is the more long-term horizon which is the culminative or cumulative training effect, right? So how do all the training units within a micro session and from week to week and, or day to day, week to week and month to month, and even season to season, how they culminate? What's the culmination of doing you know, a long run and two lifts a week, and strides, you know, tracking 60 miles a week or 100 kilometers a week. What's the cumulative effect of those? And so it's getting very clear with the athlete about where their lens is and where their expectation is. Because I, I tell you, most people, and, mo- and it's not just athletes, it's people, live in now more than ever the immediate effect world. But as a coach and from a training preparation and writing the standpoint physically, we have to always be thinking in the cumulative world. Yeah, you know, it's about perspective, right? And what happens is you get locked in to certain perspectives. I remember when I was an athlete, like I would get locked in on every single workout, right? Where it's, okay, I have to run this workout at this time in order to, you know, prove to myself that I can race this or like this is the most important thing I'm going to do is this workout. And as a coach, you have to have the opposite perspective, which you just just kind of described, is you're the big picture, right? You have to zoom in and out, but 
at the whole time you're looking at the big picture. And I, I see this all the time when I'm talking to athletes where they might, you know, go back and we might dialogue back and forth on a workout we're about to do or a workout that we've done. And they might say, well, you know, this was a little slower than last time. And, you know, I'm worried about this because of, you know, I, I didn't quite hit what I thought I could, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to say, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Like, look at the big picture, right? You did this workout for this reason. Three days ago, you did this, which tired you out more than last time you did it. You're in the middle of this mileage week and this cycle and this like emphasis period. What you did is totally fine, right? And like once you show them and explain to them, it's like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I didn't see that. I was just focused on this individual workout was better or wasn't better or whatever um, than the last time I did that. And as a coach, it's really easy to get stuck into that training as well but your job isn't your job is to see that big picture and i think you know where we're talking about jumping chasms is that's for a coach not necessarily an athlete um but for a coach i think that's that's where it that first chasm lies is not getting stuck into the minutiae day-to-day of I need to nail this workout or get better at this and only seeing that. And when you only see that, you sacrifice everything coming down the line, right? But if you can see the big picture, then you see how it all fits together and you see, hey, if I'm taking a little hit here, that's fine because it's supposed to. And that bookends, you know, into the psychology of it, right? Because it's the same situation. The immediate training effect, those are the people who are average, right? The average mindset. I, I want to have a sensation, an experience, some type of immediate feedback based on this micro unit or singular unit of work, right? And so that's where a lot of people spend time is this immediacy. That's the average mindset. I want it. It's all about now. Now, now you should jump to good. The good people, the good athletes, those people who are good, they have a understanding and they have a confidence in the residuals. That if I do, uh, you know, this interim, you know, body of work or do this and this and this, that was influenced by this thing I just did. So again, the context, the the psychological context, syncs up as well with the tra- the physiological and training context here. Those good people understand the residual impacts of things that happened before and also how the current state of being is going to influence things that are immediately coming down the road. Now, the great ones, they're the ones who live in the culminative world, right? They're the ones who understand how these five med ball throws coupled with these, you know, two sets of 10 plyos coupled with the 10 mile long run they did the day before coupled with the... Um, 150 meter sprints are doing tomorrow, coupled with the understanding of how that eight mile tempo run they're doing in three days from now, how all those ingredients create a robust uh, organism that is going to be able to be adaptive and be spon- spontaneous and be able to respond in any competitive crucible that's going to enhance them. And that's the most difficult place to get to. Why? Because it's 
you're deprioritizing the singularity about any one training method as the sole, you know, unit that's going to make you 100% better, which is what we want to do, right? Like I had an exchange with a, a coach who just recently asked me a question online, and they're asking me about hills and sprints and, you know, um, flying 30s, you know, for speed reserve. And I was telling him, he goes, well, do I have to sacrifice an aerobic day for this? And I said, well, that's a very easy mindset we have as a, you know, distance running coaches is to, you know, just focus on aerobic, aerobic, aerobic. And if we don't do something aerobic today, it's like this, you know, it's made of sugar, right? Essentially, it's like pouring water on it. We're going to, our aerobic capacity is going to evaporate one day. Not the case at all by any means. However, you have to understand like there's a neurological enhancement that happens with doing speed power work. And that neurological enhancement impacts everything else from running economy, running efficiency, you know, and also the ability to run, you know, uh, at your 10K or 5K race pace with a little bit better power and fluency, right? So it's understanding those trade-offs, but that's where the difference is from good to great in average. And the most difficult thing, and I think Steve maybe, you know, can speak about this as well in your experiences, is if you're coaching someone from a greatness mindset, from a greatness perspective, where you're focused on the cumulative effect of everything that they're doing, but they're operating in an average world, in a world where they're just focused on the immediacy of how many miles did I run this week? Was this workout this week better than the workout last week? You know, was my time this week better than my time last week? And then how to elevate that person's perspective to a good, you know, moving them from average to good and then hopefully moving their perspective from good to great. So I think this is a, a long and interesting topic, right? Because <laughs> what, what we just outlined is essentially the almost like the training, the perspective of training, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is what most of the times you think about. In terms of, uh, you know, moving an athlete along these kind of uh, dichotomies that we're talking about. Um, But a lot of times what separates it and what gets us back to that original story there was, you know, when I was talking about the kids, little kids lining up to run 100 meters, is it's really a a mental mindset perspective thing, right? Yes. Is, Is... do you have the perspective and mindset to reach that level, right? Do you have that great mindset? What does the great mindset mean? It's just what we talked about right there. It's understanding like what performance is, what real performance is, not not what, you know, you've been sold as performance in terms of hitting times like you know, nailing this workout, getting tough, mm. etc. You know, going to whatever. Um, it's understanding what performance is actually about um, on race day or in game day for those who aren't in a running standpoint. And I think when you look at at changing perspectives, what it's about is getting people to see the world through a different lens, right? So most of the time what happens is you get athletes who are stuck in a lens that they can only see through, we'll say, a shade of gray, right? Where this workout is all that matters and I need to, you know, do this to get good, right? And then you, you, what you're trying to do as a coach is broaden it at first and say, no, no, like you see it that way. 
let's broaden your horizon a little bit and see a little bit more of a big picture, right? Let's see how these things interact a little bit. See how maybe, you know, uh, getting sleep, um, having recovery, um, having a good, you know, decreasing mental fatigue going in, whatever the extra things are, let's see how they impact this one workout now right because now you've taken it out of out of this small realm and broadened it out and then and then you broaden it out again you say okay how do these variables interact right what happens how do you feel after you did a long run and then came back you know and tried to do something quick right and it's just becoming aware step one is this awareness of the of the big picture and then I think from there, it's like accepting and realizing and like creating that full transformation into what we'd call a, you know, for lack of a better term, a, a great mindset, right? A great perspective where you are focused on the big picture of getting better and not getting caught up in the, um, in the minutia or the uh, details that distract you from that ultimate test, right? There was a really good quote from um, uh, a writer. Gosh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, oh, Jonathan Franson, who was talking about how how the process is what he comes down to. And I, I tweeted it the other day, but it says, The process will never let you down, even when everything else does. The process is a thing you control. How you show up, the promises you've made. Right? Mm. And that's yes, that, yeah, that's what he comes down to, and that's what you're that's what you're trying to get your athlete to, right? The ultimate point is to get them to where they realize that the process of getting better it w- is what gets them to greatness, right? It's not mm-hmm. it's not the you know obsessing over over whether I ran this interval in seventy seconds or sixty eight seconds. It's the process of doing this day in day out. And you know, gradually climbing the uh, the stairs that, that go up and down towards performance. It's like a pot of coffee, right? Drip by drip, day by day. You know, and it doesn't. You don't need to have the, a big drip or a small drip. You just need to have a drip. And you know, we we have this idea about control in training. That's why we obsess so much about it as coaches and industry and athletes. Because if you're telling me that I do X work. I can expect ABC return. Okay, I'm going to do that because you've outlined a very simplistic and attractive and sold me on this equation that by running 100 miles a week, I'm automatically going to get good. And the reality of this is the, you know, the harsh reality, I should say, about the difference between average, good, and great is it gets lonelier as you go up the ladder, right? Because great people, great athletes, great coaches – they have a different calculus. They think different. They interpret what's going on much different than the average track fan, right? This kind of goes back to you know the, my little axe to grind here with um, um, Shelby Houlihan, and the, you know recently you know she's been having a great season, and she was quoted as saying, "Oh well, I never had. I've always had speed, but I never had strength." And then all these kind of you know, strength hogs or mileage hogs hopped on the bandwagon and said, yeah, strength, 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 strength. You got to do strength work to get better. And it's like, whoa, 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 time out. Shelby Houlihan's a very, very, very high outlier. She's one. 
you know, and you have to understand that that woman has been fast for a long time. Yes, she's blessed. She moves very well. This is something that's been known on the track circuit for a long time. You know, for her, the type of training she's doing for her is very, very proficient and productive. Now, that doesn't mean we need to all copycat what she's doing because it might, you know, not everyone has luxury of living in the mountains for eight months out of the year and running as much as they do. And also, by the way, I know for a fact, as I've heard it from Jerry Schumacher's mouth, that they do speed work. They do 150s. They do 400s. Like, it's not just pound and ground, right? I've had these discussions. So, you know, we see something, right? It's confirmation bias now more than ever, and we hop onto that. But the reality is... That we, you know, we need to understand that great people, great athletes, great coaches, they think a lot different. But unfortunately, too, it's lonelier as you get to that top. And, you know, that's, that's the famous saying, right? It's lonely at the top. And we as human beings, we are herd creatures, right? We want to be safe. We want to be secure. We want to have people that we, you know, surround ourselves with. But a lot of times that requires us staying at a lower elevation rather than soldiering our way up for the mountaintop and i think that's another cognitive thing that kind of stops people from you know ascending if you will because not a lot of people are going to go on that journey with you and there's only going to be a handful that can support you up the mountain yeah and i think that brings us to another great point is like it's easy to talk about greatness but most people don't know what it is Right. And, yeah, it's and, it's really and, hard and sometimes depressing. <laughs> yeah, and like, it, and I think that's it's like we we self limit ourselves or we limit ourselves, right? And you never know where the top is, and because you you can't know where the top is, right? I none of us know where the top is in anything, right? If we did, like we'd be. Well, I don't know what would be, but you can't see the top of the mountain. So your perspective of what grade is, is, is different. You know, if I asked you what greatness was, what fast was, there was a bit, actually there was a great Bob Kennedy quote about this during his days as he was trying to set the American, he was trying to be competitive, right? And to be competitive, he needed to set the American record and run under 13, right? And he knew if I run under 13, I'm going to be in the hunt for the medals. Well, what happened? Gebber Selassie and crew came along and running under 13 wasn't a big deal. And now you needed to run 1240, whatever. And, right, and yeah. Kennedy was like, well, I got to what I thought was the mountain, you know, 1250, whatever. But the mountain had changed, right? The top of the yeah. mountain had changed. And, the, and that same thing happens with us is you think you know uh, where your top of the mountain or where it is. And it, it changes, right? And... Well, horizons aren't stable, right? Yeah. Horizons depend on your point of view and where where you're sitting or where you're standing, right? So I can, yeah, you're exactly right, Steve. I can stand at what I think's a mountain, but it's really just a butte. And I get to the top of the butte and my horizons change. And I think we have to also coach that and understand that because greatness, as you said from that quote, is committing to the journey. This is a journey. And there's going to be a lot more downs, unfortunately, a lot more failures then there are going to be successes, but that's part of the process. It's part of the journey. You know, and we talk in training all the time, right, about here's the work demands, work units you can do. Run this many miles, run these many reps, etc. And the great thing about psychology is you can train your mind as well. You can get to think crisper. You can get to think sharper. And how? How, right? Practical. Let's give people some practical 
Yeah, and I, I think it comes back to Shelby Houlihan, actually. What people yeah. people missed, well, they missed a lot on that. Um, you know, maybe Jerry can one day tell us. But I, I think what happens is the brilliance in what Jerry did is he changed horizons, right? So Shelby, mm-hmm. Shelby was an 800, 1500 type in college, ran cross, yeah. But, you know, he got her to run indoor 5Ks, right? He got her to, to be able to do the long stuff and change her horizons on what type of runner she was because she became someone who could run anything, right? And how often have we seen the 800, 1500 runner who says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, like 5K? I'm not running a 5K, you know, <laughs> right, like yeah. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like Jerry, and he did the same thing with, um, you know, Emily Enfeld, 10K. She was a 1500 runner in college. Yep. And the, you know, the solution isn't to move everyone up, but it's to change horizons, right? It's to not limit yourself because you don't know where you're going to be. There's also been, you know, examples of athletes who have moved down and done things. Uh, The great 800 runner from the early 2000s, Andre Bucher, was a junior 10,000 meter runner. And he just moved Mm -hmm. down. But, like, you can only do that if you are open to having your horizon changed. And, you know, not to go on another side rant, but I see this all the time in college. Is isn't and in high school is an eight hundred runner willing to run cross country, especially in college? Is a male willing to run ten k or eight k? Do they do they adapt to it and say, you know what, this isn't my wheelhouse, but I'm going to give it a go and let's see what we can do with it. All the while maintaining their speed and all that stuff, obviously. But like, let's go for it. Or are they incapable of changing that horizon and instead default to their built-in excuse of, oh, no, no, I can't run cross-country because I'm an 800 runner. And if I do that, like, I'm going to lose all my speed and that's not going to benefit me. And then you say, well, no, we'll maintain that. Like, no, no, that that's too long for me. What, what they've just done there is they've self-limited themselves, right? And they've stuck on the average or the good you know, depending on their talent level. But they're mm-hmm. never going to make it to greatness because they didn't do what Shelby did, which is say, okay, like, you're gonna, you think a 5K is gonna develop me for this 1500? Great. Let's try and run a 5K, you know? And let's not also underestimate where, you know, Shelby's season this year, or even Drew Wendell's season, yeah. last outdoor season, and this indoor season, what the genesis of those seasons were. It came from a failure indoors, right? Shelby made the world team, but then she got rocked at the Worlds, rocked. And she was just beside herself. You know, the very frustrated moment for someone who thought she was doing world-class work and being world-class. But she was not a factor at all with the World Indoor Championships, right? Fifth. So what happened there between that time and now? There was some soul searching, I'm sure. There's a lot of dialogue. There was also this uh, re- reaffirmation and you know recommitment to the pro- her process of saying I'm on the right track. You know I'm just I'm 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 trying to get up this mountain. Okay, I have to shift my horizons now. About what do I have to do from not only a work physical work standpoint but a mental emotional readiness standpoint. And the same thing happened with Drew Wendell. People don't remember in 2017, Drew Wendell got rocked indoors. He was not a non-factor 
actor at the end of it. And then all of a sudden, he had a little soul-searching moment. He and you know his coach, Danny Mackey, he's a good friend of ours, you know, really just dialed in, okay, why am I doing this? What am I doing? You know, And gave Drew, and Drew created answers to the that kind of crisis of failure. And from there, made a world team outdoors that became a world indoor medal you know, this last 2017 indoors in the 800, right? Silver. This is from a guy who the year prior was a non-factor at the U.S. Indoor Championships. So we tend to want to be sold on all you got to do is work. All you got to do is just show up, go through emotions, and do this amazing amount of work, and strength's going to just magically make you good. And I'm here to argue that that's just one piece of the ingredient, you know, or one, one ingredient to, to the puzzle. Because we have to think deeper, and we have to think clearly about what greatness really is. It's that responsiveness to adversity that responsiveness and when things don't go our way or as planned most people recoil and get depressed and back off or quit or move on say oh guess it just suck you know but the great ones they rebound from it like a basketball or a bouncy ball you hit it you smack it against the ground with a lot of force yeah it stays on the, the ground and goes really low but then it decompresses and bounces back up and that's what the great ones have is that ability to rebound over and over and over again. Yeah, well, that's resiliency in a nutshell, right? People think that, actually, people think that, like, resiliency and toughness is, like, gritting through things. But actually, it's your ability to bounce back, right? It's your, yeah. It's, yeah. it's your ability to handle a stressor and then figure your way, process your way through it, and then come back even stronger, right? Or mm-hmm. come back having learned and grow from things. And I think that's where you see, again, that that separation from good to great is what happens when you get a reality check, when you get that perspective of, I'm not good enough yet, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. I am not at the level that I thought. Do you go back home and, you know, pout and, you know, maybe you know, blame someone else, which happens a lot? Do you blame, oh, my coach didn't prepare me enough. I should have been doing this. Or, you know, that other athlete did this. Or, like, I got, you know, someone got in my way tactically, so it was their fault. Do you blame other people? Or do you come back and commit to your process and say, all right, how do I grow and get stronger from this? And if I've seen anything from a coaching standpoint, is that that moment right that moment where you get you get your ass kicked a little bit or your perspective changed and in maybe a negative manner is what separates people and you see it all the time it's almost amazing to watch where it's like okay like how are they going to come back from this and as a coach you try and guide and try and help provide the resources and like push them along in a way but it's up to them to do it and sometimes and sometimes you see it and you know it's heartbreaking in the sense that you see them go the wrong direction and you're just like oh like this 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 was your moment like you know what i mean you almost want to grab them and be like shake them and be like this was the moment like this was the defining point like you just you just got you know your your butt handed to you but like it's an opportunity because you know it's an opportunity to go back and like have your perspective changed and realize okay this is what it takes right, right. And, oh, oh, and so it's almost sad to see athletes you know 
choose the other route, the easier yeah. route, right? It's easier to kind of put the blame on something else or someone else than than confront reality. And I think it was uh, Percy Sarity who talked about how training is coming to terms with reality, finding and confronting reality, right? And mm-hmm. and that's what we're doing. And and once you come to that reality, and if it's not what you want, you have a choice to make. And that choice determines if you just settle or, you know, work your way towards greatness. Well, I think a media example of that is, you know, Brian, right? The most world famous fall in the steeplechase, you know, went from potentially winning the NCAA championship to not, right? I mean, how did Brian respond, right? You know, and how he did respond gave me hope for Brian and, you know, what he can accomplish down the road. But, you know, Steve, maybe take us through that moment because that was a moment Brian could just say, look, I'm done running. I thought I was going to win the NCAA title and I didn't. I'm going to move on with my life and do something (laughs) else. But what was Brian's response after that, especially some of the, you know, negative immediate media feedback as well? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've never gone from such a high to such a low as uh, as a coach, and I'm sure him as an athlete. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know what we're talking about, briefly, you can look it up. It was on SportsCenter. But Brian uh, was leading the steeplechase at NCAA championships until uh, the last lap uh, with 300 meters to go just fell hard on a uh, hurdle barrier. Um, and went from winning by 20 meters to, you know, finishing 11th. Um, and I think the bigger thing about this was that we were in the team hunt, right? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just about Brian missing an NCAA championship. It was about, <laughs> hey, we just won the four by one, right? Brian is leading the steeplechase as our 300 meter studs who are in the final, who eventually two of them went one, two are watching this live as you know uh, in the warm-up area on the tv as they're about to head out and we're about to potentially make a statement of winning a four by one steeple and hundred all in a row um and setting up the team and and in that moment like where he fell and comes down like it's not just him it's like everybody else um as the team and you know in, in watching it you know i guess well the, when I first got to Brian, you know, um, in the uh, medical tent, you know, that's that's what was first came out of him. Is he's like, he was pretty upset, but he was pretty upset because he was like, I didn't score, you know, mm. and it was mm-hmm. like he was like, I got up, I don't know what happened, I got up, like, and all I was thinking of top eight score, you're in the top eight, trying to stay in the top eight, you know. And I think Beautiful. that that right there pointed to me at least where it's like, okay, here's a kid who just did hit, hit, got hit hard, right? Hit his head on the ground, um, almost tore a ligament in his shoulder. And, you know, he gets up and he's thinking, okay, I've got to get the finish line because my team needs me. Um, and I think that's a lot of perspective there. And then afterwards, you know, um, afterwards and and watching him kind of bounce back from it it wasn't a despair of you know oh man like i i failed it was it was a look at okay like that really sucked this is going to sting for a while but like i did everything that i could in that race 
right? I went for it trying to be perfect to put my team in a in a position to win, right? And looking back, it was like I wouldn't have changed the tactics at all because that was the best chance we had, right? That was the best chance for me individually, but also to secure as many points for our team as as possible. And I think looking at that outlook um, was really interesting, and I you know kind of hit home of okay, here's the kid who's who's processing it in real time, right? He's sitting right. there, sitting there, figuring out okay, how do I how do I meld this quote unquote failure into my story? And it it became something of you know it, it hit me hard, but it showed people who I who I am and what I do. And, you know, that night after we were sitting there with the coaches and a bunch of athletes and a bunch of fans who are Houston fans who traveled out and, you know, everyone's talking to, or actually before this, (laughs) Brian went up to his room, right? And then we were walking to dinner and everyone's like, ah, like talking about Brian and how how bad it felt and our athletic director Mm -hmm. was, you know telling me to tell him stuff and everyone's like uh brian's probably not coming to dinner i didn't think he was coming to dinner because it's you know 10 o'clock at night um he'd just gone through all this as i said he was pretty banged up and badly hurt and uh he walks you know walks into the restaurant after we've been there for about 30 minutes sits down next to people and i'm like oh man i didn't think you were coming and he's like no i wouldn't miss this this is like my team this is my family um you guys came to support me like I wouldn't miss it for the world. And like that moment right there kind of showed me like he gets the bigger picture of things, right? As it would have been easy to retreat and feel sorry for himself and woe is me and like, oh, this is going to impact everything and like I can't believe it, I have the best or I have the worst luck in the world. And he just kind of processed it as best he could and then you know, realize the bigger picture of, yes, this is one thing, but this is one thing of many, many races that I have to do in the future. And he bounced mm-hmm. back. And, you know, the funny thing is he, he was like, I want to run USA's. And he didn't run for four five days after, after um, NCAA champs. And there were two weeks in between. So he missed, you know, five days of work. Right. And why did he do that? Because he couldn't turn his shoulder right so he couldn't couldn't swing his arm to run so he like went on the bike and like spun for a little bit right but that's it and he couldn't even hurdle until actually his first hurdle was two days before the meet and he couldn't bend over when he hurdled he had to stay upright so like he practiced a couple more on the warm-up before the usa championships and usa's didn't go that well but he was like, well, I can't bend over. I can't like use my arm to do this. So we'll just see what happens. Um, but I thought it showed a lot about his his resiliency and just saying, hey, I want to be here because I qualified and it's a U.S. championship. And if I get my ass kicked, like that's okay because like it wasn't, I didn't have the preparation that everyone else had, but I'm going to go in and do everything I, he, I could. And he did. And it would have been much easier to say, you know what, I'm binged up. I'm not going to run the U.S. championships because it might hurt my, you know, chances of getting a a sponsorship or it might hurt my chances because, you know, I might not be at peak 
fitness or whatever because I had this happen. But he just he said, no, it's it's a U.S. champ. Like, it's an opportunity. It's a gift. You never know when you qualify. I'm going to do it. And I think that those two instances kind of point to Brian's resiliency um, more than more than anything else. And to me, that's the definition of greatness. You know, having that clarity to make those tough decisions, to be able to absorb and then respond to you know a crushing defeat, but with confidence, you know, yeah, I mean, integrity, yes, disappointment. But to be able to keep showing up, and this is what Desi Linden means by keep showing up, right? Brian demonstrated this throughout the whole um, uh, two-week period after that, that, that crushing fall, right? He just kept showing up. And that is so hard in this day and age, kind of getting back to the uh, impatience dialogue we had about the current you know, form of athlete and even kind of current, you know, new breed of coaches is like this impatience about wanting to see an immediate return on our work, this impatience about wanting to have immediate positive feedback and, oh, only did I did something good so I can post something good because I can get the social kudos for it. That's not real. The real thing is the decisions and the dialogues that are being made offline between athlete and coach, you know, and even athlete in his there in his or her own world. And that's I think a lot of times what Steve and I in this podcast try to recommend to every coach is encourage that internal dialogue. Give people tools that's gonna help them think crisper and think more clearly. And one of the things I always try to encourage people is write. Write it down. Not pen not not write it down on your phone, but pin to paper. Keep a paper journal with a pen. This was told to me long ago by Vin Lanana when I asked how he had his athletes at Stanford and Oregon keep training logs. And he goes, I always believed even when, you know, all the um, technology started to get easier and more fluid that there was importance for an athlete to write down on a piece of paper their physical training because it made it real. And that, I think, is more than anything. When you manifest and create those strokes on the paper, it makes your thoughts real. And you just write every day. Just write a little, write a little, write a little. Steve and I, you know, we have, I don't know how many stacks of notes or a note, like we both keep a notebook journal that's just a bunch of ideas, right? And ideas are cheap. I mean, we must have, what, 100 ideas a day. Then we just write them down and get out and the next things come. But this is what great scholars do. This is what great athletes do. This is what great business people do. This is what great, you know, um, husbands and wives do, right? They leave each other like little love notes or et cetera. But write it down because that's going to be really uh, help people articulate and clarify their thoughts. Because why? I have to choose this word over that word. I have to choose this sentiment and this sentence over this other one. I have to make choices. That's why writing down is important, because you have to make definitive choices about what to express on the piece of paper. And that's the same reality that you have come race day or come performance day, come game day. You have to make definitive choices in the moment. And you can't rely on all this preparation and go back and check through your preparation, um, you know, checklist to say, okay, now I can catch the ball. Okay, now I can sprint. Okay, now I can, you know, now I have the green light from coach to, to run the last 200 all out. You have to be responsive in the moment as the moment is shaped. And that's the beauty of sport, right, is we have these unpredictable arenas where we know there's constraints in a finite setting of running this distance or playing, you know, a game with a ball for this long, you know, within these boundaries. But th- what can happen is 
in between that start and finish is infinite is at anyone's desire and that's the beauty of what we're trying to get to is move and shepherd yourself to that greatness and part of the greatness is being okay with instability being okay with unpredictability being okay with a little bit of lack of control because it affords you the opportunity to create and that's what i remind people all the time is when you release control a little bit that's when you're able to create your greatest work but when you're so narcissistic and worried and um, sheltered by this illusion, this crutch of having to control every little thing and have it be quantifiable and measurable and objective, and you know, you you lose you know you lose the spirit of what sport to me is about. You know, and to finish off this you know podcast with one last tangent, it goes back to the you know uh, article I read recently about how over measuring everything. You know, from a performance readiness standpoint, like over measuring, okay, what's people's pulse? What's people's reaction times? What's people's uh, heart rate variability? What's, you know, an athlete's this and that? Like that over measuring is actually muting our ability to train and muting our ability to perform because we're sending a signal that, yeah, we want to be preventive of injuries or we want to be, you know, responsive and not create an injury situation by an overload situation for an athlete. But we're also saying a signal that you only can do the work when you're perfect. You only can do the work when you feel like, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine today because I took three days off. But we know that is not training. That's not preparation. That's not performance. Some of the greatest, you know, memories are like Michael Jordan's flu game, right, when he played in the NBA final with the flu or even more explicitly, Brian, here, he went to USA's, not 100%, still a jacked up arm, you know, or shoulder, but he showed up to still compete and see what he had, despite the adversity he was facing. That, more than anything, to me, at least, is an indication of greatness and why I have a lot of hope and excitement for Brian, not only in the future of his rank career, but also the future of what he's going to do in the world as a young, young man and older man. So I'll end with this is is from a college standpoint and having coached high school as well is I like to tell both my student athletes and the recruits parents that you can tell if a person or an athlete is going to be successful in life based on their decisions and choices they make in running right and I think that is that is what you got to there is generally you can tell who's got who's going to be able to handle it and do it and be resilient and bounce back and handle life and succeed at just about anything they they want to do based on those choices you know i can think back of athletes i've had through the years on the college ranks and been here long enough to see some of them take jobs and grow up and develop now and and it's just that you can see okay this person's got it like they they are making the hard choice or they are showing up they're going to do this and and that doesn't matter if it's for a race or if it's for you know some business opportunity or getting fired in work and and bouncing back from it um and i think that's where you know where this model of average to good to great like yes we're talking about coaching yes we're talking about performance but it branches out to life right there's a reason that they're the best-selling book good to great it has sold a, a billion you know not that many but thousands of <laughs> thousands of, of copies right it's because people want to know what does it take to there to get there and a lot of times people look for a secret to get there but 
as they found in that book, as we found in looking at athletes, is it's, there's no grand secret, right? It's creating, right. it's creating people and athletes who are resilient enough to handle the ups and downs of, of life, of training, and have the mindset uh, to be able to grow and develop regardless of what's thrown at them. And I think that is, if there's, quote unquote, a secret, that's it. And that's culture, right? I mean, yeah. that's what that book, Good to Great's about. That's what Mike Smith has created at NAU. You know, why everyone's fascinated by NAU or even Rob Connor at University of Portland, like in the men's NCAA cross country world or the culture you guys have at University of Houston, Speed City, you know, um, Burrell's comments after he won the 100 saying he did it for Brian, right, NCAs. Like, that's culture. You can't manufacture that. You can't fake that. But what you can do is you can create an environment. And that's what we as coaches are. We're curators of an environment. And sometimes, despite your best efforts, the culture slipped away from you that season. Despite everything you try to say and do, you just have players or athletes on the team or on your roster that you're working with who just aren't aligned with the culture. And that's okay. It's not a bad thing. You don't need to correct them, but it might not be for them, right? And I always remind people, as you get more comfortable and more secure and enthused about your coaching practice, just know like one of the key critical um, constituents for developing and elevating is alignment. And some people, no matter what you do or how much you offer or what you give them, they're just not aligned or they were aligned and no longer aligned. So remember, culture, 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 that's what we mean when we're saying culture is this responsiveness of creating an, an environment that affords people this resiliency in disappointing moments to rebound and get the best out of them after the disappointment. That's what the great ones do over and over and over again. And you know what else the great coaches do? What's that, Steve? They use Final Surge. Oh, yes, they do. It's a great platform. They, Final Surge, has made the transition from good to great in terms of coaching platforms. Um, in all seriousness, they have. They are athletes and runners themselves who have coached individuals, and they created it from the ground up to enable us to do our jobs better. So if you want to do your jobs better, be able to spend more time creating the culture versus spending time in your Excel spreadsheet, then please, please, please check out Final Surge. Again, finalsurge.com slash oncoaching. Use the coupon code oncoaching to get your 10% off and to let them know that, hey, this sponsorship is working um, and that they can continue to sponsor and help bring us these great episodes that they are so um thanks again everyone for listening uh as always check out our our blogs and everything that's going on at highperformancewest.com or check out john and i on twitter that'll be in the show notes just you know just to keep us informed um or to keep you informed on what's going on not so much from a marketing standpoint but because we want to make sure that what we're putting out in the world is of value and that hopefully you guys see some value from it too and that we can interact with you uh, you all on the social media and you know you guys can help us in, in person better. most importantly in person like it's been so awesome to go to yep. track meets and have conversations with coaches and young coaches and people who are listeners and you know thank you thank you for taking what we put on offer and considering it by no means do you have to agree with everything that we say that's not the point the point is just to 
create a contribution that's going to help elevate how we all practice and how we all think and operate to try to do the good work we're trying to all do as, as coaches, as teachers in this, in this world while we have air in our lungs. Yep, exactly. 